Thanks for downloading this show from PC One. Before we get rolling, here's a word from one of the folks who helped bring you this podcast. Lowe's knows you'll do spring right by saving on what you need to get your garden growing. We do it right too with incredible deals during our spring Black Friday sale, like 19 ounce Bonnie vegetable and herb plants, four for ten dollars. And pick up five bags of Scott's mulch in store only for just ten dollars. Whatever's on your list, hurry in and save during our Spring Black Friday sale. Do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through four seventeen while supplies last. Not valid in Alaska or Hawaii. Scott's offer valid in store only. See store for details. U.S. only. FreshBooks is a ridiculously easy to use cloud accounting software for small business owners that saves you time and gets you paid faster. Now used by over 10 million people worldwide. For your 30-day free trial, go to freshbooks.com slash Forbes and enter the Forbes interview in the how did you hear about us section. This is the Forbes interview on podcast one. And I'm your host, Steve Bertoni. On this show, I'll do deep dive interviews with billionaires, entrepreneurs, and influencers. These are the faces you see on the cover of Forbes. And if they aren't in the cover, they easily could be. All right, everybody, welcome to the show today. Very excited to have John Scully, who's a master CEO, marketer, executive extraordinaire, and entrepreneur. Um, He basically turbocharged Pepsi back in the 70s and 80s, then ran a little little company called Apple um, for, um, for a decade and has done a lot in between and after. So John, welcome to the show. Thank you, Stephen. So let's start off. I wanna talk about these last, almost these last couple of years with um, kind of the, the rise of Apple, the death of Steve Jobs. Um, you know, he became an icon and that obviously, I think, put a spotlight on you too. Um, and I'd love to kind of describe what life's been like, the good, the bad, and the opportunities. Great. So uh, I knew Steve Jobs when he was 27 years old. And Steve Jobs 1.0 was as inspirational and brilliant and creative as Steve Jobs Mm 2.0 became. But he was still a young person who was developing uh, what his management style was going to be. And uh, he was absolutely self-confident that he was going to change the world. And as he would say, I'm going to put a dent in the universe. Mm -hmm. And he did, of course. But... Uh, Steve Jobs uh, 1.0 was still in deep learning mode. Mm -hmm. And the reason I was recruited to Apple was that Steve was the co-founder of Apple. He was the largest shareholder of Apple. He was the chairman of the board. But the board did not feel he was ready to become the CEO. So they would not appoint him as the CEO, but they gave him the authority to veto uh, someone that, uh, he didn't want to see become the CEO. So you were the, uh, the, the famous, the adult in the room, so to speak. Well, I was recruited because they exhausted every <laughs> logical person in the tech industry to, who could be a CEO of Apple because Steve turned them down. And David Rockefeller, the Rockefeller family uh-huh. through Venrock, had been one of the earliest investors at Apple, said, well, why don't you try another part of the country in a different industry? And they went to Jerry Roach, who at the time at, at Hydrogen Struggles, he was the most famous executive recruiter for CEOs. And, and that led to uh, me discovering Silicon Valley. Most uh, people on the East Coast and corporate America never heard of, of Silicon yeah. Valley. They used to call it Silicon Valley. <laughs> uh, but um, it was an amazing five months that I got to know Steve. And I remember that... Uh, he would come and visit me every weekend. I'd go visit him if uh, he wasn't here. And the result was that by the end of March, we were in New York City, and, and uh, we'd spent the whole uh, Sunday walking around New York. I took him to the Metropolitan Museum to see the uh, uh, archaic sculpture because uh-huh. I wanted to see how he reacted to something I knew he didn't know anything about to, to get uh, sort of... Um, a view of it from someone and he took me to Tower Records to show me his or listen to his favorite songs uh, particularly Wyndham Hill which was uh, one of his very favorite at the time and Joan Baez and we ended up on the terrace of his apartment at the San Remo Towers that he just bought it was a triple X apartment and we're looking out uh, over the Hudson River and I turned to Steve we're standing on the balcony I said Steve I've thought about it I'm I'm not coming to Apple I said (laughs) 
I'll be an advisor. I'll do it for free. Yeah. Uh, you're, you're an amazingly brilliant person. I know you'll be successful, but uh, this isn't for me. What was it? What, what was the thing at first that made you not want to do it? Besides never having experience in software or Silicon Valley or in computers. Because I was in an environment that I understood. Yeah. Uh, we had recently passed Coca-Cola as the largest selling consumer packaged goods in the United States. And I had a you know, pretty clear idea of um, if I didn't end up being the, the CEO of PepsiCo, that you know, there are other oppor- opportunities out there. And I love the East Coast. Uh, so... Steve is standing there with his blue jeans and black turtleneck sweater. Even yep. then, yep. he wore that. But in those days, he had jet black hair. Uh, his eyes were uh, dark, you know, pools that you'd look into, and, and uh, you know, it was mesmerizing. And he looked down for the longest time, and then he looked up at me and stared me straight in the eye. And he said, do you want to sell sugar water for the rest of your life? <laughs> or do you want to come with me and change the world? And I didn't give an answer different than what I said minutes earlier, but uh, a week later I was working at Apple. And that was Steve Jobs, that is um, amazing ability to find the right words and his personal charisma that he could literally uh, bend people's Mm -hmm. uh, answers. And I saw that over and over again. So that that one sentence that flipped you, that one sentence? Well, it, it, it haunted me. And it knocked the wind out of me at the at the moment. But uh, over the next several days, I thought about it and said, you know, I wonder what I will have missed if I mm-hmm. if I don't uh, join Steve Jobs. And so what had attracted Steve to me, remember, I was not a computer engineer, yeah. but then neither was he. Mm-hmm. And what attracted uh, him to me was um, what we had done at, at Apple, excuse me, at Pepsi, where when I was made marketing VP in 1970, we were outsold 10 to 1 in 50% of the country. So mm-hmm. we weren't even really a serious national brand. We were a regional brand. And Coke was the most famous brand in the world yeah. at th- that time. So the insight we had was we said, you know, Coke owns reality. So we have to own perception because perception leads reality. And that led to a campaign called the Pepsi Challenge. Mm-hmm. And we said it's all about customer experience. And so in this case, we had uh, real customers. We started in San Antonio, Texas, with uh, a market where we were outsold 10 to 1. And people there had never had a thought in their mind about ever wanting to try a different soft drink than Coca-Cola. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. I want to tell you about an awesome new podcast. It's called Fan Club by Viacom, and it's about why we love what we love. Fan Club is a short series hosted by Ross Martin, who has perhaps thought more about fandom than anyone else on Earth. Ross has dedicated his career to marketing and innovation and entertainment. Ross has continually explored fandom through his work at Viacom, home of Comedy Central, MTV, Nickelodeon, BET, and so many more iconic brands and shows that you love. On Fan Club... Ross is trying to figure out the future of how we're going to watch, listen, and consume culture. He talks to a slew of amazing, brilliant people across the pop culture landscape, musicians, artists, fashion designers, chefs, even scientists, about how their work is being experienced today and how they think it will be experienced in the years to come. Fan Club will change the way you think about the things you love. Subscribe now at vbyviacom.com slash fan club or wherever you're listening to this show. Down there, don't they call they call all sort of Coke, right? It's kind of like, oh, what kind of Coke do you want? Kind yeah, of thing, right. right. Yeah. So it's, it's really, the brand is... The brand and the generic are the yeah. same thing. So uh, the Pepsi challenge was all about real people taking a taste test blind and then the reveal, uh, seeing what they had selected. Mm-hmm. And the most famous commercial uh, was one where it was a grandmother and a little girl uh, leaning over her shoulder, her granddaughter. And we had three cameras on it, uh, one on the granddaughter, one on the grandmother taking the taste test, and one on the on the person administering the taste test. And as she went through the taste test, the little granddaughter is just sitting there with eyes like saucers uh, watching her. And then there's the reveal, and the little girl spouts out, Grandma, you chose Pepsi. <laughs> and Grandma said, I guess I did. I must really like Pepsi better than Coke, and I've never had a Pepsi before in my life. Bang. That's all you need. And that was not only a fantastic commercial, uh, 
one of the best I was ever in, involved with. But uh, it drove Coca-Cola up the wall. <laughs> and they sued us. They said it was unfair okay. uh, marketing practices. And all that did was to generate more attention. Well, Steve loved that story because he said, I'm building a product uh, called Macintosh. And it was still um, over a year away. Mm-hmm. He said, it's all about experience for non-technical people to be able to do creative things. And at that time, nobody in Silicon Valley or anywhere else in high tech was talking about the idea that technology products should be sold as consumer Mm -hmm. products, particularly sold around experience. And so Steve loved that. It was being sold as kind of business tools and almost B2B. Well, it was all about bits and bytes and Mm -hmm. technology performance and things like that, which were interesting to other engineers, but yeah. that weren't particularly interesting to people who were non-technical. And that's what Steve wanted to do. He said he wanted to build bicycles for the mind, mm-hmm. for non-technical creative people to do amazing creative things that they, they never knew were possible. And he did. And that was the beginning of, of the dream that he later in Steve Jobs 2.0 uh, turned into the most valuable company in the world. It's incredible. And you mentioned before that he, when he mentioned that one sentence that turned, he said it haunted you, the uh, you want to just sell sugar water the rest of your life. When you were working for Pepsi, was there a sense of purpose in that? Did you feel, not guilty, but was it hard? Were you excited about selling soda? Were you like motivated to sell, sell that product versus selling you know, something that might be you know, healthier or better for you? To be honest, it never crossed our mind. Mm-hmm. Um, it was all about uh, competition and building a business. Uh, being successful at it, but it was uh, so radically different than what I was to learn when I went to Apple. When I had been at Apple for just a few months, and we're sitting around in the Macintosh engineering lab Mm -hmm. late at night, Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, myself, Steve and Bill are talking about their noble cause, that they were gonna change the world, one person at a time. They were gonna Mm -hmm. do it by creating tools for the mind. And I'm sitting there saying, I've never heard about business leaders talking about noble causes. You know, it never came up in any discussions we ever had when I was at Pepsi. So those, Pepsi was all about, obviously, sales and the Pepsi was and, about yeah. market share. Yeah. And um, if we didn't improve market share, we were out. I mean, it was uh, a very uh, demanding culture. But by the way, not so different from any other you know large successful yeah, exactly. uh, East Coast corporate America company. So uh, my role was was to uh, teach Steve Jobs about experience marketing, and we did it with the first launch commercial for for the Macintosh uh, around the Super Bowl. And what Steve taught me uh, had even more impact on my life because he talked me about something he called zooming. 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 Zooming meant to Steve, zoom out. Uh, look beyond the boundaries of the market or industry that you're in. Mm-hmm. See what's going on out there that may be converging towards your industry. And the example that became famous uh, in those days with Steve was desktop publishing. That Steve had studied at Reed College before he dropped out. He loved calligraphy. He loved fonts. Mm-hmm. And he was a designer at heart, even though he never trained as a designer. He had natural design instincts. And that was something that made a huge impression on his mind. And then he went to Xerox Palo Alto Research Center. Xerox had been an early investor in Mm -hmm. Apple. And he was given an invitation to come over and see what they were working on, uh, not far from Cupertino, where Apple was. And what he saw amazed him. These were experimental $80,000 engineering workstations, but they used a graphical user interface. And so Steve started to connect the dots. That was the mouse in the desktop. and all Exactly, yeah. Yeah, the mouse, desktop, all the things we have taken for granted with personal computing. That all came out of Xerox. Mm-hmm. It didn't come from Apple. But Steve said, hey, I can adapt that graphic user interface. I can ad- make it do things like laser printing, which they were also working on at Xerox, that can print out these beautiful fonts. And if I can take Apple's sense of how you make really expensive products simple, this is Waz's mm-hmm. great contribution. Yeah. Uh, Waz figured out how to make $80,000 disk drives you know, for a few hundred dollars and things of that sort. 
so you combine those connecting the dots between those zoom out uh, perspective and then Steve said you have to zoom in because he would often recount that uh, simplification is the ultimate sophistication mm-hmm. and so he was very, constantly very, always very zen of him right? yes, yes very influenced by zen and he would constantly say yeah we've got to reduce the number of steps we've got to simplify 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 and it came back to his design principles if you everything that steve did um, was to look at things from a minimalist standpoint and now you look at apple today decades later those principles are still there. They're in the foundation of what we know today mm-hmm. of Apple and every one of the uh, incredible products uh, Steve came up with uh, when he returned to Apple as Steve Jobs 2.0. You mentioned you know, the Steve Jobs 2.0 and, and talk, talking about zooming in, zooming out. When you were watching from afar when he came back and he's, he's with his new, the iMac, and then when he first came out with the first iPod and the iPhone, were you kind of like watching this happen and kind of seeing this this kind of, his philosophy at play and knew exactly what he was doing? Well, I had a pretty good idea how he thought about things because for three years, um, he and I were about as close as any two individuals who worked together Mm -hmm. could be. You know, we were there seven days a week and um, late into the night. And so it was um, something that I knew, having been so close to him, how he thought about things. And so... um, the first thing he did was to simplify the product line. The next thing he did was to take um, the Macintosh and uh, make the design elements uh, important again, because you know, Apple had sort of disappeared in, in, into the noise. And Steve you know, made them exciting and made these jelly bean, multicolored yep. iMac computers. With, with the handles and everything. Yeah, and, and at that time, you know, timing is everything when you do things. Uh, that... Uh, the web had been launched. Mm-hmm. There was no World Wide Web when I was at Apple. There were no digital cell phones. I mean, none of that stuff existed in the industry. But Steve took advantage of the World Wide Web and said, I'm going to make the iMac uh, the best way to connect to the web. Mm-hmm. So he didn't need a lot of software the way um, the, the Windows machines from uh, Intel and, and Microsoft did. Uh, he said, I'm just going to make the user experience, going back to the user experience, uh, so incredible that mm-hmm. this is the way everybody will want to connect to the World Wide Web. And he did this not just once, but he did it again a few years later when he came out with the iPod. Well, the MP3 players had been around for years. Yeah. Uh, they'd become a commodity uh, even before the iPod was created. So Steve creates, again, a beautiful design to a commodity product, but um, he had that extra brilliance where he said, you know, it's about the service that you attach to the product. And so he created iTunes. Mm -hmm. And iTunes was something that disrupted one of the most entrenched, powerful industries in the world, which was the music label industry, uh, where music had traditionally been sold in albums. And Steve said, no, I want to sell it by individual song. Yeah, he unbundled the whole thing. Unbundled the whole thing. And then with his brilliance, because he, he was also you know, a brilliant marketer, maybe the best ever, and when he came out to introduce the iPod, uh, he didn't say, here's a new powerful device that has lots of you know, songs. He came out and pulls this thing out of his pocket and says, how would you like to have a thousand songs <laughs> in your pocket? It was brilliant. And that was Steve Jobs. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. A curious thing happened to FreshBooks on its way to becoming the largest cloud accounting software platform for small business owners in the world. As a company, they've managed to stay small while soaring to over 10 million users strong. Or is it the other way around? Has FreshBooks customer base soared because their company has stayed small? Named as a small giant on Forbes' list of best small companies this year, FreshBooks has been recognized for focusing on greatness over growth. By drastically simplifying tasks like invoicing, tracking expenses, and getting paid online, and delivering award-winning customer service that usually picks up in under three rings, FreshBooks has changed how small business owners deal with their day-to-day paperwork. This is really only a fraction of what FreshBooks can do, and they want you to see more. To claim your 30-day free trial, no credit card required, just go to freshbooks.com Forbes and enter the Forbes interview. 
in the How Did You Hear About Us section. What did you learn from marketing from him and what might have he gleaned off of you for all those years? Well, what I learned from, from Steve was, was that when he became interested in something, he just absorbed it in uh, great detail. He wanted to know everything about it. Uh, Steve was, uh, at Pepsi, we used to call it uh, marketing as theater. Mm -hmm. And we would do it in front of our bottlers and put on a big show because we were trying to sign them up to programs for the following year. Steve took that idea much, much further than, than uh, I had ever done. And he made marketing as theater you know, one of the elements in terms of the experience. So, for example, when people would see Steve Jobs uh, at a Mac event, mm -hmm. um, and it looked so natural and like it just was spontaneous, uh, I know, because I uh, had watched him do this, he would rehearse over and over in great detail. It's sort of like um, you know, when a, a great basketball player uh, like Kobe Bryant used to tell me he said uh, John I, I shoot a thousand baskets every day yeah. every day <laughs> you know even when he was the best he'd still go out and do it every day well that, Steve Jobs was the same way he just was relentless in the amount of preparation that he put into something and when he was on stage uh, ironically he'd been very nervous beforehand people yeah. don't realize that <laughs> Barbara Streisand apparently is, is the same way but as soon as he got out on stage yeah, he just came alive, and he just made it seem so natural. And he'd say, "Oh, and one more thing," yeah. and then, of course, that'd be the most important uh, part of the event. And would he practice like in front of the you and the team, or would he kind of just be in the mirror by himself every day, going over? Well, stuff? I don't know whether he did by himself because yeah. I wasn't there. Yeah. But but uh, I do know with with the team, and and uh, often he'd be screaming and mad at people and make them do it over again. It wasn't you know done perfectly. He was a perfectionist. Yeah. Um, so these were pretty, you know, uh, strenuous uh, preparation sessions before Steve had one of his big events. But they all, it all paid off in the end. It all paid off, yeah. And you've, you've had a fascinating career, and you've, you, know, you've went, you went from you know, big consumer products, Pepsi, to you know, high-end Apple, and then you've done a lot of telecom and now you're in entrepreneurship. You've mentored a ton of people. Now you're into healthcare and prescriptions. Uh, kind of take me back. How did you get into business to begin with? And how have you been able to adapt from soda to computers to prescriptions? What is the, how do you make the change? What's the challenge? And also, is there a thread that kind of connects all these things? Well, well, there is a thread. And it actually goes back to when I was a little kid. Um, I wasn't interested in toys. I was interested in parts, mm -hmm. uh, electronic parts. And I used to um, build things from you know, the early days I can remember when I was five or six years old, I would everything from dry cell batteries and, and uh, knife switches and uh, little lights to um, taking radios apart. And when I got into my teens, I started um, buying secondhand television mm -hmm. sets. And I lived in New York City and uh, I'd go down to Cortland Street, which is now where the World Trade Center yeah. is. And I would buy uh, secondhand radio equipment and I would buy uh, old televisions and I'd wire them up. I'd build experimental color televisions. Um, well, I, when I was a teenager, uh, I had a patent application for uh, one of the first single um, cathode ray gun television hmm. um, tubes and a bunch of stuff. So I was into electronics. Were you I was all self-taught? Would you like read magazines or tinker around? Oh, yeah. yeah. No, I, I read uh, every... Uh, technical magazine I could get my hands on. I was a ham radio operator, mm -hmm. uh, K2HEP, since I was 13. So I was very comfortable around electronics, but it was all analog electronics. Mm -hmm. uh, I was essentially a designer and a builder. Uh, I don't think I would have been a great engineer because when I take something apart and put it back together again, there are always parts left over. Yeah. <laughs> Engineers don't do that, did but your, designers do. Designers your, are looking for better ways to take things uh, away, take, put things together again. Did your parents, th do you think you were crazy? Doing, like, were your parents technical, or was this kind of a whole out well, of field? My father couldn't have been less technical. He was a, a, a Wall Street lawyer. Okay. And, uh, a different kind of He of was very smart, incredibly bright man, but uh, he was uh, not... Uh, interested in technology. My mother's uh, father, my grandfather, uh, was an inventor, mm -hmm. and he, he loved uh, anything to do with you know, building and inventing, and, and he had a big influence on, on my life. So I was very influenced by that. My mother was an artist. 
um, and designer, and so I was influenced by her as well. What sort of things did your grandfather invent? Well, he uh, was part of the team that designed the first submarine. Wow. And uh, the one of the um, models that were built is still around. Uh, it's in a museum uh, over in Liverpool in England where mm-hmm. he worked. Um, my f- mother's family are all from Bermuda where I grew up. Okay. And he uh, did this back in the 1890s. So... Uh, I would spend many hours with my grandfather in Bermuda when I was uh, a young boy um, talking about inventions and how we could desalinate water and how we could remember Bermuda is a small island yes. that depends on rainwater for its drinking water. So to me, uh, design and I was a good at drawing uh, were important. When I went to university, I went to Brown University, mm-hmm. but I also did a co-terminal at RISD, Rhode Island School of Design. Uh, my big interest was to become an industrial designer. And I worked in the summer as an industrial designer, ended up going to the Graduate School of Architecture mm-hmm. after Brown at the University of Pennsylvania. But I switched from that over to Wharton Business School because I realized that um, to be a designer, you also had to be a business person. And I decided that architecture was not the best place for me to learn mm-hmm. industrial design. So I said, I'm going to go and learn about business. I didn't know anything about uh, business at that point. And ironically, uh, when I was at the University of Pennsylvania, I was um, working as a student when I was in grad school at the Management Science Institute for two of the really outstanding professors at Mm. Wharton Business School, uh, Russ Acoff, and um, we were building mathematical models uh, with things that were called Bayesian statistics. And uh, later when I got to Pepsi, I was in the marketing research department and mm-hmm. I was doing Markov chain analysis and, and Monte Carlo game theory. Well, these things seemed like, you know, curiosities back in those days. Well, they're the fundamental building blocks of what we today call machine learning. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. The Forbes Interview Podcast is brought to you by a new podcast called Fan Club, presented by Viacom and hosted by Ross Martin. And it's about why we love what we love. Subscribe to Fan Club now at vbyviacom.com slash fan club or wherever you listen to podcasts. How did you go from kind of being interested in design and architecture to marketing, um, especially at Pepsi? What, what led you, what made that jump? Well, I always saw marketing through the eyes of a designer and as a builder and a designer, uh, to me, when I thought about communications, if it was advertising or um, as I was thinking about building a brand, uh, building a brand to me is about um, uh, the customer experience. You mm-hmm. brand the customer experience. You just don't brand the product. And so it's everything where the brand represents uh, impact on the customer so as a designer because i had uh, worked as an industrial designer um, in the summers when i got to pepsi i started designing the merchandising equipment uh, i helped design the first uh, two liter plastic bottle um, which was an interesting story because uh, the first assignment i was given when i was put in charge of marketing at pepsi was to come up with a, a 12 ounce glass bottle, returnable bottle, Mm -hmm. that could compete against Coca-Cola's famous uh, glass bottle. And every time Pepsi had tried to do this, it always infringed on the Coke design because the Coke bottle was perfect for holding in your hands. Mm It's very iconic in its hourglass shape, and it vended well in a vending machine and so forth. Well, we went out and we conducted an in-home product use test where we took 550 homes, delivered uh, soft drinks to them each week of their choice, and by the end of nine weeks, we saw something really quite remarkable that we never ex- had thought about when we designed the test. And that was no matter how much inventory was in the household inventory the week before, it was always empty the next week. And as we thought about that, we said, you know, why are we trying to design a little tiny glass bottle? What we should really be doing is designing bigger containers that can hold more ounces of fluid, of beverage, because can, that's can, where the money can, is. You can sell more, yeah. Yeah, so uh, that led to the creation of the two-liter plastic bottle. And since there was no merchandising equipment for two-liter plastic bottles, um, I worked uh, personally on designing merchandising equipment, off-shelf displays, busy coolers, you know, mm-hmm. things, things of this sort. 
we also took the two liter plastic bottle and we put on it something that was brand new. It was just being launched and it was called the Universal uh, Product Code, better known as the Barcode. Okay. And the reason we did that was that we were a store door delivery system. We would deliver uh, soft drinks uh, every day to supermarkets with a truck. And the large chains did not have the information as to how much we, were, we or Coke were actually selling because they only tracked warehouse withdrawal products. So by putting the barcode on the two-liter plastic bottles, it gave the chains for the first time the way of measuring just how much soft drinks. And it just overwhelmed them because they had no mm-hmm. idea that soft drinks was such a large part of their, their sales. Out of that uh, came a marketing concept uh, of how we would tell the story. Remember, we're little tiny Pepsi competing yeah. with giant Coke. So uh, our pitch became, we are your new bank, as we went to the large chains. Mm-hmm. And the chains were just starting to uh, uh, grow at the, at the, uh, back in those days in the 1970s. And the chain executives would look at me and they'd say, what do you mean, you're our new bank? I said, well, our records show, because we have a little barcode mm-hmm. on, on the two-liter bottle, that... Uh, you turn our product over five times before you have to pay us. So we're like a money machine for <laughs> you. And they said, you know, that makes sense. And so they uh, doubled, in some cases tripled, the size of the display within in uh, supermarkets for soft drinks. And a lot of that uh, went, went to Pepsi as we used mm-hmm. planograms and ways to lay out uh, shelves. So it was all those kind of tactical uh, ways of, of implementing marketing programs that helped uh, Pepsi become the uh, f- company that w- that received an award from A.C. Nielsen, who mm-hmm. was measuring market share in those days, as the longest consecutive share increase of any product that ever measured. And Coke comes back after that and said, well, what do you mean? We don't see it in our Nielsen. Mm-hmm. Well, I had worked on the Coke Nielsen's uh, at uh, McCann Erickson, where I had worked right after business school, and I knew that they only tracked physical bottles. And the key thing was to track what became known as the 8-ounce equivalent bottles. Well, there are eight 8-ounce eight equivalent bottles in every 2-liter wow. package. So there were things like that of you know, focusing on details, thinking about things in, in another way um, that helped us differentiate. And it's, it's really kind of the, the things that, um, that Steve and I were trying to do in, mm-hmm. in those uh, days that we worked together at Apple. Well, I won't, we won't tell Bloomberg that you invented the big soda bottles. We'll keep that between, we'll keep yeah, that between you us. You know, I, I have to tell you, I feel so embarrassed now because I thought um, being CEO of a soft drink company was the coolest thing in the yeah. world Yeah, back in the 1970s. And so uh, if you were running McDonald's or Coca-Cola or Wendy's or Pepsi, I mean, these were the cool jobs. And now I step back and I say, gosh, what were we doing? Let's see. We were... Uh, selling you know, sugar uh, products to the young kids. You know, we were selling uh, with Frito-Lay uh, products that had high fat content. Yeah. And we were selling them in, in new packages that were made of plastic that are now a problem in, in terms of you know, how do we deal with the environment. And I said, wow, it never occurred to us when we were doing this. Um, and so I'm, I'm really pleased to see now that Coke and Pepsi are both trying to rethink the, the industries they're in. They're trying to get into mm-hmm. healthier drinks to lower the sugar rates and all those things. But I can tell you, having been in the middle of it all uh, back in the 1970s, it didn't occur to any of us in, in those industries. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Lowe's knows you'll do spring right by saving on what you need to get your garden growing. We do it right, too, with incredible deals during our spring Black Friday sale, like 19-ounce Bonnie vegetable and herb plants, four for $10. And pick up five bags of Scott's Mulch in store only for just $10. Whatever's on your list, hurry in and save during our Spring Black Friday sale. Do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 417 while supplies last. Not valid in Alaska or Hawaii. Scott's offer valid in store only. See store for details U.S. only. Today on Geffen Playhouse Unscripted, we are joined by actor, producer, director, author. What else can you do, Brian Cranston? I sweep floors. You do? And I load a dishwasher really, really well. 
Do you unload it? Not too many. Okay. <laughs> We could give you a job in our the house. The talent is loading it, not unloading. No, the talent is buying the dishes that fit together and not the dishes that I buy that don't fit in the dishwasher. Well, I could teach you how they can fit. Okay, All Brian, right. thank you. That's Brian Cranston on Geffen Playhouse Unscripted. Be sure to listen on Podcast One or through the Podcast One app and Apple Podcasts. This podcast is brought to you by Braintree. If you think that your payment system exists solely for the purpose of transferring money from a customer's wallet to yours, think again. Braintree. Rethink payments. Learn more at braintreepayments.com slash Forbes. Now, sugar is the evil thing. There's, they're saying there's conspiracies to have the sugar lobby blame carbs, not sugar. Is that, is that what do you think about that? Like, do you, do you agree with this evilness of sugar? Well, I don't know if I use the word evil, evil but, but I'm saying but, is but, it? but you know, uh, we know now yeah. uh, that uh, too much sugar is not good for you, and uh, particularly with kids. You know, you're you've seen so many different cycles, and you're a master brander. If you were starting a startup right now and launching a, a, a new brand, what would you what would be your first steps these days? Now with you know social media and storytelling and just the whole disruption of all media. If you're doing a consumer product, what are the key things that you would focus on today? Well, the first thing I do is to recognize that uh, we live in a time today where customers are in control. Mm -hmm. So you say, what are the derivative effects of all of these amazing technologies, whether it's mobile phones or cloud computing or data analytics? The end result is that customers have more control, uh, particularly over product decisions, brand decisions, than they've ever had before. So... I would always start with what's a really big, juicy customer problem that needs to be solved. Mm -hmm. uh, just to go out and take a product and slap a, you know, a brand on it and try to do some cool advertising, that's really not, to me, great marketing. Mm -hmm. Great marketing is starting all the way back to you know, what is the customer problem that we can solve in a better way. And I've often talked to uh, young students at, at business schools and technical universities about... Um, forget about the business plan. And everyone sort of gives you a stare. Well, what do you mean? You're a business guy. Yeah. You're telling me to forget about the business plan. I say, yeah. The business plan is really just a budgeting exercise. It's basically starting with where you've been and then looking forward maybe a year and saying, so um, if I can set some goals to imp of improvement, then how do I allocate the resources that mm -hmm. are available to do that? And it becomes very political in most organizations. But if you start with a customer plan, and a customer plan, again, says what's in it for the customer. What, what problem are you going to solve? Basically. What are you going to solve? And then how do you engage the customer? And how do you uh, monetize the customer? And how do you retain the customer? And how do you think about the customer's lifetime value? And you have all of your metrics around doing something for the customer. You'll end up making money. Now, look at Jeff Bezos mm -hmm. at, at Amazon. He doesn't start out by saying, how much money can I make selling books and then selling everything? Um, he starts out by saying, what's in it for the customer? What customer problem that I can solve? And I've heard Jeff say, uh, show me an industry that's got, got high profit margins, yep. and I'll show you a, an opportunity that can ch be changed the whole industry itself. And he's done it time and time again and probably will continue to do that yeah. industry by industry. He's in, every, he's in everything. He's, like he's in, in everything. Every, every part of my house is, is yeah. Bezos. So, so I'd, I'd say of all the CEOs out there, I, I admire Jeff Bezos the most mm -hmm. uh, because he's not only able to run a great business, but he's able to create businesses. And he always starts with the customer. It's always about the customer plan. You've, seen, you've met so many incredible CEOs that we put on pedestals. Um, in the media these days, who are some of like the truly most like interest, interesting and inspiring um, kind of business leaders you've you've seen through your whole journey? Well, I've been really lucky because I've been around some uh, amazingly talented people, mm -hmm. and I would say that the current leadership of of some of the most valuable companies today are every bit as good, if not better, than, than the, the CEOs I, I was um, exposed to coming up. As an example, um, when I look at Elon Musk, mm -hmm. uh, what he's doing with Tesla, um, instead of saying, you know, how do you make a better car? You know, he zoomed out, you know, a Steve Jobs 
uh, way of thinking about things and said, you know, let's reconsider everything to do with transportation mm. and see it in a different way. Um, you can see that with other leadership in new companies, whether it's Uber and Lyft, whether it's Airbnb, you know, the so-called asset light yeah. uh, companies. Um, it isn't just that their models are asset light. It's that they saw things in a different way. And I was lucky enough to uh, be working with the MIT Media Lab mm-hmm. back at the time that uh, Jerry Wiesner, uh, who had been the president of MIT, and, and Nicholas Negroponte founded it. And what I learned, because I got to work with, with um, and Apple was, was uh, deeply involved with yeah. me. I was on the um, advisory board for 17 years at the MIT Media Lab. And I got exposed to some amazing uh, individuals there. One was Marvin Minsky. Mm-hmm. And Marvin is one of the fathers of today what we call artificial intelligence. And Marvin used to say, you don't really understand something until you understand it more than one way. Mm-hmm. And the more I go through life, uh, just like that noble cause I learned from Bill Gates and Steve Jobs, uh, to understand the same set of facts more than one way is what these geniuses do. What do you, what do you mean by that? Well, an example. Um, if, if you take what um, Elon Musk did with automobiles, he didn't just see that the automobile was about putting an electric engine in the car. Mm. He saw that you had to change the entire infrastructure. You know, how are you going to charge these cars? That led him into uh, solar energy technology. Mm. Uh, so now he's launched a business of roof tiles. I saw that, yeah. You know, to, um, and his goal is to become the largest company in the world to build roof tiles uh, using solar power. Uh, so these geniuses who take the same facts that are available to everybody else. I mean, all the facts were available for General Motors and for Ford and other companies in the auto industry, Toyota. Uh, Why didn't they come out Mm -hmm. and build um, the kind of visionary products that Elon Musk did? Well, what did they do? They went out and they said, well, we're not sure the market's ready, so we'll do something that's a hybrid. Uh, And they try to modify an existing car and, and yeah, kind of slowly wean our way into yeah. that. Yeah. And, and that's not how great innovation is done. Great innovation is done, um, you know, Greenfield, when you start mm-hmm. out and say, there has to be a better way. And you look at it uh, without prior bias to something else. So the, the people I admire, the ones who are taking on entirely new ways of thinking about things, whether it's Larry Page and Sergey Brin, mm-hmm. whether it's Mark Zuckerberg, um, you know, people who are just saying, you know, we're at an amazing point of time. Um, never in my lifetime have we had so many exponentially growing technologies as we have right now. Well, that's obvious that these things are commoditizing and they're mm-hmm. available. But as you zoom out again uh, and think about it, we as humans have been living for s- centuries with linear time. And we kind of know intuitively that things happen, you know, weeks, mm-hmm. months, years. But now we're living in exponential time. And a good example of that was back in 2007 when Kodak, who invented the digital camera, who was the largest photo printer in the world, uh, totally understood that digital photography was coming. But they were in a marketing battle with Walmart over the single-use silver halide film uh, camera. And Those little, the little uh, cardboard ones? You bet. Yeah, that's it. And so what did they do? Um, they doubled down on their vertical integration for processing of those little cardboard and plastic single-use cameras at exactly the same time when Steve Jobs uh, came out with the iPhone wow, yeah. because he saw something that other people didn't. The facts were all there that uh, we're, we're now into digital uh, cell phones. Uh, we're moving from 2G, which was mm-hmm. about text, and we're going to 3G, which meant we could send photos. Yep. And Steve realized that if you took an uh, iPod and put a phone chip in it, uh, that you could actually send photos over this iPod with a phone chip in it, which became known as, as the iPhone. And then Steve realized with iTunes that had been so successful with the iPod that instead of just offering... Uh, songs that you could actually put little apps 
mm-hmm. you know, on the iPhone, and that became the App Store. So what happened? You know, four years later, uh, Kodak, that had been a $26 billion market cap company, what goes bankrupt, and Apple becomes the, the beginning of its journey to becoming the most valuable company in the world. The point being that Kodak knew the world was going to change digital photography. They yeah. just never expected it would happen in that four years. So that's going to happen in industry after industry because it's not just uh, Moore's Law that's uh, changing every couple of years, mm-hmm. doubling uh, the number of transistors you can put on the same size wafer, but it's everything is changing. Everything is changing. And so we live in a time of exponential change. So if you are an entrepreneur and you're thinking about building a company, you have to not only put it first in the context of solving a big customer problem, but you also have to put it into the context that what used to take three years can be done in three months. What used to take three months can be done in three weeks. And that's the world we live in. So something that seems expensive uh, is now inexpensive. Something that, that seemed, which were barriers to entry. Uh, if you wanted to start a software company 20 years ago, you, you better have at least $10 million. Yeah. T- today, all you need is a credit card. Yep. Um, so the opportunities for entrepreneurs are amazingly different than anything that we've seen in prior decades. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Small businesses are at the heart of our communities. They're the places we could not live without. Whether you're looking to create a website for your business or a personal blog, you'll make a big impact when you build your site on WordPress.com. Even if you don't have experience building a website, WordPress.com can guide you through the process. They have hundreds of customized themes to get you started. You'll get built-in social sharing. And if you're on WordPress.com, you immediately have a leg up on everyone else when it comes to search engine optimization. Another bonus on WordPress.com, you get support 24-7 when you need it. So you can easily create high-quality content with no distractions and focus on running your business. Come see why more websites run on WordPress than on any other platform. Get started today with 15% off any new plan purchase. Go to WordPress.com slash Forbes to create your website and find the membership plan that's right for you. That's WordPress.com slash Forbes for 15% off your brand new website. Once again, that's WordPress.com slash Forbes. Well, you mentioned before how basically the photo revolution took only four years instead of decades. What in the next four years is going to, what's your prediction is going to kind of knock us sideways? There's so many neat things going on, and I'm lucky enough that I'm still out there being able to be a part of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't run these companies anymore, but uh, I'm a trusted advisor to a few and an investor with my wife, Diane. And uh, the most exciting one for me right now is healthcare. healthcare. So uh, I remember 10 years ago, Bob Metcalf, who is the inventor of Ethernet, which is the uh, protocols for what the Internet is yeah. built on, uh, was telling a group of us, um, he holds a, a big boys campus, he calls it every summer. This would be the 23rd year. And we go off to an island in Maine, and it's all engineers mm-hmm. from Silicon Valley and uh, MIT and so forth. And Bob said, you know, you have to reinvent yourself every 10 years, John. And I thought about that 10 years ago. And I said, yeah, I, what shall I reinvent myself as? <laughs> and I decided I wanted to do something entirely different. I wanted to go in healthcare because here was this giant industry that was intimidating to people because of its mm-hmm. complexity and yet had problems that eventually high tech should be able to help address. So and it's a massive market. And, and massive so market. Important to- and then I looked at, so why haven't the high tech um, innovators gone into the healthcare industry? And, and the, the basic answer that I um, came up with was that it's, it's, it's just too complicated. Mm-hmm. It's a regulated industry. It's got thousands of rules and regulations and protocols and conventions. Yeah. It's life and, or death. You can't, yeah. you can't experiment. You can experiment, but you can't, uh, you and, know. and then I looked inside the uh, healthcare industry, and I said, so why haven't these um, executives, because many of them, much like Kodak, had talented people. They mm. always hired the smartest kids in the engineering schools they went to. Uh, there's some very talented, smart people in the healthcare industry, but they all move around uh, within their own industry. Uh, you don't see people moving in from other other industries mm-hmm. as much as you do in in uh, industries that have radically changed, you know, like e-commerce and telecommunications and financial services. So uh, I said I'm going to spend time to learn the complexity of healthcare, and 
I think I can bring something with my consumer background and with my high-tech background. And so uh, I was fortunate enough to uh, meet the founder of the company that my wife Diane and I are involved with, uh, Ravi Ika from Rx Advance. Mm-hmm. Um, he is everything you want a CEO uh, entrepreneur to be. Uh, a great intellect, a great leader, knows how to solve problems, attracts talented people, uh, has a great reputation, gets does stuff done. Does he have a healthcare background or a tech background? He, he has a healthcare background, mm-hmm. but 16 years in health tech. Gotcha. And he was very successful before I ever met him in his, in his previous company. And he has built a company called RX Advance. And it has gone into one of the uh, stodgiest, um, controversial parts of the healthcare industry, which is what are called PBMs, pharmacy benefit managers. What are those? Pharmacy benefit managers are the companies that adjudicate the reimbursement of uh, benefits between the pharmaceutical companies and the health plans. So this is really sexy stuff here. Really sexy stuff. <laughs> However, what he realized was that uh, it's required by regulations that every time a doctor writes a prescription, it must be recorded for the clinical mm-hmm. claims and related lab data, and that these PBMs, the pharmacy benefit management companies, were using this data to be able to manage at the back end, you know, deep in the bowels of healthcare. Uh, the benefits between the pharmacy, pharmaceutical companies and the, and the health plans. And so Ravi Ika said he could build a cloud platform because he did it with his previous mm-hmm. company called Ica Systems. He built that to 34 million members. And, okay. and uh, so he knew how to build big, successful companies. So he took that same prescription data and said, I can take it across the entire care continuum. I can take it all the way out to the point of care of chronically ill patients. I can look at the uh, typically nine different chronic care diseases and different prescriptions that are written for these patients who are taking 15 to 25 pills a day. Mm -hmm. And if I can get the right information in the hands of the physicians, they can determine how to take out 30 or 40 uh, percent of the prescriptions that are being written because they're duplicates or they're causing uh, side effects that that could be avoided. And so Rx Advance uh, launched in 2016 for its first year of revenue we did 65 million dollars of revenue this year we'll do 500 million mm-hmm. next year we'll be well over a billion um, it's one of the fastest growing companies i've ever seen uh, we think uh, we'll be somewhere between 12 and 15 billion of revenue by 2020 that's only three years away uh, and who, who pay how do you how do you make money uh first of all we are making money yes yeah uh, so uh, we, we funded it without venture capitalists. Mm-hmm. We um, have raised about $30 million. And the company is already, uh, it's at break even uh, now moving into, into profitability. The company um, is scaling rapidly. Uh, we announced uh, just a few weeks ago uh, up in Boston that we uh, plan to add 2,000 people over mm-hmm. the next 18 months. Uh, and so if you go out to uh, you know, the traditional sort of high-tech uh, world, they aren't even aware of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and even if we get to 12 or $15 billion, Stephen, by uh, 2020, we'll still only be about 2% mm-hmm. of the market. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. This podcast is brought to you by Braintree. Having an up-to-date payment system is one of those things like a rattle in your engine that you might let slide to the bottom of the to-do list. Everything's working now, so you'll get to it when you get to it, but that's not necessarily a practical strategy. Leave it too long, and you could be stranded on the side of the highway. And when we're talking about getting paid, you don't want to get stranded. It might not be a bad time to check in with Braintree and keep your business humming. Braintree, rethink payments. Find out more at braintreepayments.com slash Forbes. So in terms of you provide this, this service by helping basically, I guess, big people manage their care through, you know, through big data, it sounds like. Well, here, here's how we think about it. Um, 5% of the population is costing $1.5 trillion a year. Mm-hmm. These 5% of the population are the chronically ill. They are people who... Uh, suffer from maybe nine different chronic care diseases. Like, it's like diabe- things like diabetes and the, things you always have to kind of And it's called high comorbidity, meaning that if you are suffering from obesity, high probability that you have uh, obstructive sleep apnea, hypertension, mm-hmm. um, 
you know, all of these things are interrelated, obesity, diabetes, uh, COPD, mm-hmm. you know, and then you can add in other uh, serious diseases like, you know, cancer and so forth. So uh, this is what's killing the healthcare system, and these people are killing themselves. Uh, and a lot of this is avoidable. And in fact, uh, McKinsey uh, Global Institute uh, said of the $3 trillion of health spend we have every year, about $900 billion of that, just a little a uh, bit less than a third, $900 billion of that is avoidable. So life, lifestyle yeah. changes. Uh, that and you know, fraud, abuse, misuse, uh, and a lot of it in the what's called the RX ecosystem, where RX Advance is. This is the, uh, anything to do with pharmaceuticals, but not just the pharmaceutical products. It's all of the downstream implications so that somebody who's taking 15 to 25 pills a day and probably has side effects from some of the drugs that weren't known by the mm. physicians writing the scripts. Um, if we can help give them the analytics, uh, we're basically bringing in transparency into an industry that's never had a spotlight okay. at, at this level of detail. Who do, you cha- who, pay, do you charge? Who pays you? Do you charge the pharmacies or the patients or the now, medical systems? Uh, or? We, we are in the system, so um, we make our money working with the health plans because mm-hmm. uh, we can save them uh, lots of money. And, and across the whole health system, is literally you know, tens of billions of dollars of potential savings. This is a kind of a SaaS-based model sort of thing. No, it's not yeah. SaaS-based. Uh, uh, the previous company that Robbie Ica, the founder of RX Advance, built was a SaaS-based company. And then he realized when he started RX Advance that the money wasn't just in giving people access to a technology license like SaaS, um, but the money was in literally taking the cost the medical costs of delivery of, of mm-hmm. healthcare out of the system. So for the for the uh, eligibility group that we're looking at, the, this most seriously ill five percent of the population that's costing so much money, if we can get this information all the way out to point of care to get them to adhere to their medications every day, to avoid taking ones that are duplicates, which the physicians have mm-hmm. to make those decisions, that we believe there's about ten thousand dollars per patient who fits into this this group uh, that can be saved every year. Well, scale that up, and you're talking many, many billions of dollars. So the insurance companies love you? Insurance companies love it. Um, and I'd say everybody in, in the healthcare um, payer industry, the insurance industry, knows who we are. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, you know, the company is a disruptor, yeah. If you were made kind of the czar of Obamacare right now, what would you do? First of all, uh, I am absolutely convinced it's a solvable problem, yeah. and it has, the solution has very little to do with what the politicians are talking about. Mm-hmm. So the politicians are uh, from the from the left would like to go to a single payer system, and from the right they, they'd like to completely disintermediate any role of the government mm-hmm. and grant it all to the states to decide. And so, what you see is a debate going on in Congress between. Uh, those who want to repair Obamacare and those who want to repeal it. At the, the bottom line, it, it doesn't make much difference, you know, yeah. which, which way they go. What really makes a difference is how do you significantly reduce the cost of delivering health care, especially to these very, very sick people? Mm-hmm. Because uh, if there is really, let's say, $900 billion of avoidable uh, costs in the health care system out of that $3 trillion, why haven't we put more spotlight on looking at new ways of mm-hmm. delivering healthcare? Much like Amazon came in to e-commerce and say, "Hey, there's there's another way to do this than just being a, a brick and mortar retailer." And what makes healthcare different than that is that it's it's a regulated industry, yeah. and there are thousands of rules. So if you look at what RX Advance has built, our technology uh, is really about the complexity of thousands of rules or protocols of uh, being able to adjudicate you know all of these different transactions mm-hmm. uh, and to simplify something that's been overly complex and in fact we're able to take so much cost out of the delivery of health care that the major I'd say controversy that PBMs have had, pharmacy benefit mm-hmm. managers, is that people say, well, 
it's not clear where the money's being made. You know, what's this spread money called? You know, and who's making it? And how yeah. much do you get? And how much do the pharmacy, pharmaceutical companies get? And how much is that influencing the price of drugs? And the reality is that uh, we came back and said, hey, we don't need any of that money. You know, we'll make our money just on a flat fee of oh. a cl- every claim that we transact. And we want to be known as a company that, that gives you digital transparency across the health system, particularly for the, um, what's called the RX ecosystem. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. The Forbes interview is brought to you by WordPress.com. WordPress powers 27% of all websites, including Forbes blog posts. Get 15% off your new website today at WordPress.com slash Forbes. That's WordPress.com slash Forbes. The transparency and the information is so important. I remember I met with a a kind of a health insurance startup and they they scrubbed the numbers, but they showed me these patients and they said, listen, like these 100 patients are costing us 80% of the the cost. And one person is like, this person cost us, you know, $4 million last year because they went to the emergency room. 72 times because they didn't take their medication basically and they're saying we could pay a nurse or a practitioner to live with this person and save you know 95 percent of the money just to make sure that they take their stuff so it's it's fascinating that like the sickest people well, not sick the pe- a small amount of users take so much of the cost make so much of the cost in the system and a lot of it as you're saying and they're saying too is preventable it's lifestyle it's habit it's just it's information it's like that last the last mile so to speak of healthcare is costing us trillions right yeah. So the way I think about it is that uh, after Apple, I went into telecommunications mm-hmm. and I was part of the founding team of Metro PCS. We built it up and eventually sold it for $9 billion to uh, T-Mobile. Mm-hmm. And then I went in, into financial services and, and uh, was part of the team called Intralinks. And we built that up and we took it public and then it was eventually sold. And I'm now in fintech uh, where we're building, we think, one of the most interesting um, machine learning mm-hmm. companies to take the whole consumer credit score and to simplify and make it a real-time experience, make it more accurate. So invent and get rid of the old FICO scores and those kind of things? Well, um, we can go a lot beyond mm-hmm. what FICO has, has uh, been focused on. So, for example, if you're a middle-income person and your income hasn't gone up in 15 years, big customer problem. Remember, start with the customer problem. Yeah. Uh, and you want to get a big ticket item like $25,000 for a dental implant or buy an automobile or mm. you know, uh, major renovation on your house, um, if you have a 620 credit score, you'll pay 20, 21% per annum interest rate. Wow. If you had a 720 score, 100 points higher, uh, you'd pay about 10% uh, interest rate. So we can help middle-income people expand their credit worthiness and purchasing power, borrowing power. Uh, and the problem with credit scores today is that to get your credit score improved uh, can take six months or more. Mm-hmm. And we can do all of this in real time with an interactive credit uh, scoring. And it's all based on uh, our what we call Beam AI technology at Lantern uh, Credit. So uh, that's another regulated industry. Mm-hmm. I actually like regulated industries because it, it, they're harder on the one hand because you've got to learn the domain expertise, but they're more interesting when you figure it out uh, because you have a longer time uh, to be able to take advantage of what, what you built. Yeah, and there's lots of opportunities there because the yeah. regulation creates friction. Yeah, so what, what I think will happen in health care, I think we have a very good chance of becoming a very successful role model mm-hmm. for what's possible to significantly change uh, the way people have thought about health care. Going back to your question earlier about what would I do if I were in charge of Obamacare? Yeah. You know, I'd be out talking to people uh, in the high-tech world about how can we lower the cost of delivery of health care and give people a higher quality customers, patients, a higher quality experience. Well, if we are as successful as, as I think we will be, uh, there'll be other companies that'll want to come out and mm-hmm. say, hey, I can do this too in some other sector. Maybe they'll compete directly with us. Maybe they'll do something different. It's a giant industry. Take Uber, for example. How big do you think the worldwide industry is for Uber? In terms of how big the transportation industry yeah. is? I, I have no idea. But it's, the, the, the addressable market for them is about $200 billion a year. Our addressable market uh, is $3 trillion a year. The specific part that we go... Uh, into is 
$840 billion a year, the, the RX ecosystem. The chance to remove cost uh, is estimated that $450 billion of cost could be removed. So the addressable market, the opportunity to mm-hmm. remove cost is gigantic. No one company is going to do it. You know, so it isn't that we're going to get all of that business. It's that we'll be hopefully one of the early examples that, hey, you can really bring major innovation into this industry that, that has been hermetically sealed from the kinds of things that are going on in, in other exponentially growing industries. John Scully from Pepsi. We covered Pepsi to Apple to Obamacare. We're solving all the problems today. John, thanks for joining. Thank you, Stephen. That's it for this episode of The Forbes Interview. I'm Steve Bertoni. If you'd like to reach us, email us at interview at podcastone.com. Thanks for listening. Lowe's knows you'll do spring right by saving on what you need to get your garden growing. We do it right, too, with incredible deals during our spring Black Friday sale, like 19-ounce Bonnie vegetable and herb plants, four for $10. And pick up five bags of Scott's Mulch in store only for just $10. Whatever's on your list, hurry in and save during our spring Black Friday sale. Do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 417 while supplies last. Not valid in Alaska or Hawaii. Scott's offer valid in store only. See store for details, U.S. only. At the border. I'm Ed Donahue with an AP News Minute. At the roundtable discussion today in San Antonio, Texas, President Trump heard something he said he never heard before about life along the border. Many people are dying, and the danger of living here, unless you know exactly what you're doing, is tremendous. This is Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Where are the people in Washington to stand up for these children, these women, these senior citizens? Where are they? Bring them down. Mr. President, let the Democrats come down to Brooks County. Let them come to any of these ranches. Let them see these bodies. Let them see the skeletons. We have the photographs. Attorney General William Barr says he thinks spying did occur on Donald Trump's presidential campaign, suggesting the origins of the Russia investigation may have been mishandled. Scientists released the first image ever made of a black hole, revealing a fiery ring of gravity-twisted light swirling around the edge of the abyss. One scientist said science fiction has become science fact. I'm Ed Donahue.